0: Ah, peace. That's what we say we want, isn't it? Peace on Earth? But how do we get beyond the cliché of those holiday-associated words and actually implement peace as a practical means of living before we blow ourselves and the planet into an asteroid belt? What is peace anyway? And then you hear from a genuine expert, someone who is dedicated to teaching conflict resolution as the means of achieving peace and he tells you
1: if you're working for environmental awareness and peace with the planet it also helps to work on the conflict resolution and if you're working on resolving conflicts part of that is those over resources and the planet if we can ensure that we're not investing our time and resources into a military approach to problems, which the world is currently spending $1.9 trillion a year on, if we weren't invested so much in that, we would have more human resources, financial resources, to invest in renewable energies, climate protection, biodiversity protection, peace, COVID-19, public health plans and economic recovery.
0: Well, sign me up for that. Because when you hear an international expert on teaching sound, practical actions one can take to achieve and promote and maintain peace, you get the tiniest glimpse that there may just be a way to get up and away from that awful seat that everyone on this planet is currently sharing. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? New. one of the most hopeful interviews I've ever conducted for this show. I speak with Alan Ware, who is Global Coordinator for Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament and a veteran of decades of teaching peace, a.k.a. conflict resolution, to everyone from national political leaders to kindergarten children. It is truly a different perspective on the mess that our entrenched war-saturated, violence-thinking has gotten us into, with a message that will resonate long after you've given it a listen. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than would be admitted by the Texas bureaucrats and politicians who are trying to blame the deadly lack of electricity in their state during the current cold snap on functioning wind turbines when it was a nuclear reactor that stopped working. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 16, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In Japan on February 13, a 7.3 earthquake hit off the coast of Fukushima. It was an aftershock to the 2011 earthquake, which caused a triple meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi and created a tsunami that killed over 16,000 people. Interestingly, within two hours of the quake, Tokyo Electric Power Company, which is still in charge of the facilities at Fukushima and the cleanup, reported that there was, quote unquote, no damage. How could they know that after only two hours? Well, they didn't look closely enough. It has now been discovered that radioactive water leaked from three separate tank farms on the property. And TEPCO has not yet disclosed how many tanks have been inspected on site and how many remain to be inspected for damage. More from Mother Nature here in the U.S., where a powerful winter storm blasted Texas with Arctic temperatures that triggered widespread blackouts, leaving up to one-third of the state without electricity. Among the failures, the South Texas Nuclear Generating Station, which tripped into shutdown on Sunday, February 14. Yet South Texas delayed reporting their outage for five hours, guaranteeing that when the Nuclear Regulatory Commission reactor status report posted on Monday morning, it would falsely show South Texas running at 100%. When the Tuesday NRC reactor status report caught up with the shutdown at South Texas, it was blamed on, quote, loss of feed water pumps, cause unknown. Might the cause of that been pipes that have frozen? The timing on this is important because in the future, when the energy situation during this time is researched by reporters and policy wonks, the nuclear industry will be able to falsely claim that on Sunday and Monday it was reliable when it was not. And we still don't know whether those water pipes might be frozen, meaning unable to provide cooling water to operate the reactor. Meanwhile, The state's politicians and bureaucrats are trying to falsely blame the energy failure on genuinely reliable wind generation, which actually surpassed daily production forecasts. We've learned that military officials were unaware of potential danger to Vice President Mike Pence's nuclear football during the Capitol riot. The vice president is always accompanied by a backup of the football, which carries the nuclear launch strike codes and is identical to the one that the president carries. They came to within 100 feet of where Pence, his family, and the aide with the football were sheltering while the insurrectionists chanted, Hang Mike Pence. If they'd gotten their hands on Pence's football, they couldn't have launched an unauthorized nuclear attack But had they acquired its contents, which include pre-planned nuclear strike options, they could have shared the contents with the world. As Kingston Reif, an expert on nuclear weapons policy at the Nonpartisan Arms Control Association, told CNN, such an outcome would have been a security breach of almost incomprehensible proportions, and it ought to raise further questions about the rationale for the anachronism that is the nuclear football. And at Turkey Point in Florida... Last August, three unplanned shutdowns during a four-day period have been blamed on nuclear equipment failures. Turkey Point is licensed to run for 80 years or through 2050. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that the week. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission was trying to hold a webinar but had to cancel because of bad audio and video, claiming it was technical difficulties. This particularly galled the San Onofre activists, dozens of whom got up at the crack of dawn in order to make the 9 a.m. Eastern time for the call. The NRC recently moved to the WebEx platform instead of Zoom because it turns out the Chinese own a controlling interest in Zoom, though I don't know what information would be lost by using Zoom because, hey, it's a public meeting. Anybody can get in it. Makes you wonder how they regulate power plants, eh? And that's why, as is so often the case, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Have you noticed how nuclear just keeps inventing new ways to malfunction, like what just happened in Texas during the current deadly cold snap, where the South Texas nuclear reactor stopped functioning? This is only the latest in a long line of nuclear problems that range from uranium mining to radiation-leaking reactors to still not having any way to safely store deadly radioactive waste that results and is produced by all their endeavors. Nuclear is government and business not caring how they contaminate the world as long as they can lie long enough and well enough to keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking they are immune to the consequences of their actions. How's that working out for you this week, Texas? Meanwhile, the rest of us have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own, ever. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We never take our eye off the nuclear ball, getting into stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, whenever possible, humor. That's why right now would be a great time to support us with a donation, because it's the only way we keep going. So please, go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the big red Donate button, and help us with a donation of any size. That's where you can also set up a monthly $5, same as a cup of coffee and a tip here in the U.S. We should ever get beyond COVID and back into coffee shops again. So please, do what you can now to help Nuclear Hot Seat keep going. And know that however much you can assist us, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. One of the things I love about doing Nuclear Hot Seat is that I get to meet and talk in depth with extraordinary people around the world who truly have a different perspective when it comes to our nuclear problems. This week's guest is one such discovery. Alan Ware is a New Zealand peace educator and campaigner in the areas of peace, nonviolence, nuclear abolition, international law, women's rights, children's rights, indigenous rights, and the environment. He has served as the global coordinator for Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament since it was founded in 2002. His previous positions include Director of Aotearoa Lawyers for Peace, Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee on Nuclear Policy in the United States, Director of the Peace Foundation Schools Outreach Program for the United Nations Decade for a Culture of Peace, and Founding Director of the Mobile Peace Van. He also has a long list of awards recognizing his work on behalf of people, the environment, and the planet. I spoke with Alan Ware on February 12, 2021. Alan Ware, it's so great to have you with us here today on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: It's a great honor to be here. Thank you for all the wonderful work you've been doing to educate, inform, and engage people in the U.S. and around the world on these issues. Back at you.
0: (laughs) In researching your background, I was astounded by the work that you have done on intersecting areas of peace, nonviolence, nuclear abolition, international law, women's rights, children's rights, and the environment. Give us a sense of your background and what attracted you to this range of issues.
1: I first started uh, my professional career as a kindergarten teacher, and that was working you know, with children to ensure that they're more engaged and have a better world to live in. And as soon as you're working with children, you realize that these issues intersect with each other, you know, that in order for us to have a good life, then we need to have a sustainable world, a peaceful world, and that's where these issues intersect. Pretty soon, I was working on developing peace and conflict resolution programs in schools, from kindergarten through primary, secondary or elementary, high schools, um, and then into community education as well. And again, it's cross-secting issues when you're talking about resolving conflicts. And the key thing, I think, for my background in that is to understand... Conflict resolution takes time, it's not easy, but it is so much more rewarding when you listen to each other, when you find out what the reasons are behind conflicts or behind these issues and you work for solutions than if you're just trying a quick fix. And so that's my basic approach to these issues is to try and find sustainable solutions. Quick fixes don't work.
0: In educating the world, I think taking the perspective of a kindergarten teacher is probably a good step to take for breaking it down. Where was it that you were working when you developed this program, meaning the country, and is the program still in operation?
1: Yes, so I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Aotearoa is the Indigenous name. Both names are now official for the country. And As I said, I moved pretty quickly from being a kindergarten teacher to doing conflict resolution education and peace education throughout the education sector. So that wasn't just with preschool children, but with the entire sector in the education. I was doing both education out in the field, going around to schools, you know, helping teachers to put into place conflict resolution and peace education. And I was also working with the government, the Ministry of Education, to develop With our organisation, the Foundation for Peace Studies, uh, to develop a peace education as part of the New Zealand curriculum. So that is now in the curriculum. At the same time, I couldn't just work with children in an education field if I'm not also working on making the world a better place. And when I was a young teacher, the big existential threat to humanity was nuclear weapons that still poses an existential threat that hasn't gone away. We still have Mm -hmm. 13,000 nuclear weapons, you know, probably 1,500 on high alert, you know, that could be fired within minutes in a conflict by accident or miscalculation. But we also have other existential threats now, like the threat to the climate, the biodiversity collapse, you know, the collapse of the oceans. Uh, so the environmental issues are as important now, I think, as the nuclear weapons issues. And we found pretty early on is these are connected. You know, if you're working for environmental awareness and peace with the planet, it also helps to work on the conflict resolution. And if you're working on resolving conflicts, part of that is those over resources and the planet. If we can ensure that we're not investing our time and resources into a military approach to problems, which the world is currently spending $1.9 trillion a year on, if we weren't invested so much in that, we would have more human resources, financial resources to invest in renewable energies, climate protection, biodiversity protection, you know, peace, COVID-19, public health plans and economic recovery. We do have those resources collectively in the planet, but we still haven't yet shifted enough from a military framework for security to a common security or human security framework.
0: When you are putting forth concepts of peace, what do you find is the most general pushback against it or the most difficult hurdle to get beyond in communicating what the principles are and why they are so important?
1: I don't think there is like one particular main resistance to the ideas of peace conflict resolution and a human security or common security framework i think there are multiple levels to this which is one of the reasons why it's not easy there are some you know who have invested interests in militarism and in the arms race that could be financial interests you know they're making an income out of making weapons and so it's very difficult if you're making money out of you know making weapons to agree to disarmament process There's also some who from an academic or theoretical framework have supported this approach, a militaristic approach, as the one that guarantees security. And to shift from that thinking is quite a leap. It's quite a leap of faith, in a sense, to change from the idea that we're protected by having lots of weapons to deter someone from attacking us, to saying, actually, we would do better if we put down the weapons opened up our fists to hands, shook hands with them, and worked for conflict resolution. There's a lot of fear to peace approach, and there's, there's a lack of confidence that it can work. And one of the reasons for that is there's not enough information, I think, about the peaceful resolution of conflicts. Most of the times, in most of the world, we are resolving conflicts peacefully with each other. But it's not those peaceful resolution of conflicts that gets attention. It's when it fails. It's when violence breaks out. It's when armed conflict starts that suddenly the media takes a lot of attention and it sort of reinforces this myth that, oh dear, you know, violence, Uh, militarism is a natural part of humanity when I don't think it is. But it takes faith and it takes work to work for peace. As I mentioned, peace is not the easiest approach. You have to spend time to listen to the other side, to work out what are the issues. A military approach is a very simple approach. You know, I feel insecure by this enemy. I'm going to take up weapons. Conceptually, it's very simple. It's a lazy approach to it. The peace approach is, is a much more complicated approach. It takes more exploration of ideas. And sometimes you find one option that doesn't work. You have to find another one. I know in the area of nonviolence, uh, you know, Gandhi put forward, you know, some very wonderful ideas on nonviolence. But then Gene Sharp came along and said, actually, there is what, 198 different types of nonviolent action. And that really opened people's minds. Ah, so peace is not just one simple approach. No, no, it's actually very complicated, but it's the better approach.
0: How can people find out how to teach peace and teach peaceful approaches and push this forward?
1: I think it operates at multiple levels of society. So it's in our schools as part of you know, the school curriculum, having peace education. As I said, New Zealand, we have it there. And part of that is how to resolve conflicts with your brothers and sisters, with your parents, with other pupils at school, with teachers. Then looking at how to resolve conflicts that happen in the community you know, around them. And then how do you apply those principles also to resolving conflicts between countries. If school pupils feel they can't resolve their own conflicts, they're not going to have very much confidence about conflict resolution nationally or internationally. But if they have experience in resolving conflicts, then they're inspired. And so that's where we started with Peace Education in New Zealand. We started with peer mediation programs where we would teach the pupils how to resolve each other's conflicts. And then once They were actually doing that really well. They wanted to get involved and say, how do we get involved in the the bigger issues? And then you see some of the principles of peace education and resolving conflicts at home and school and the community are available in the international realm. We have a United Nations. The United Nations has a number of mechanisms, mediation, using courts, the International Court of Justice, arbitration, how diplomacy can work, it's got support for that. There are a lot of mechanisms in the United Nations that countries can use and often they do and they use it very effectively and it helps prevent war, it helps resolve conflicts. Doesn't always work, as I mentioned before, We hear the bad stories, we don't hear the good stories. So what we've done is also do like a public education platform. It's called Unfold Zero, United Nations. Folding is like creating and zero is like zero nuclear weapons. And it's looking at the United Nations, putting more attention to the United Nations mechanisms that can help resolve conflicts and provide security so that countries don't need to feel that they have to rely on nuclear weapons or the threat or use of force. So we have that as a public platform and we do a lot of like events. Uh, we just did one last week, actually, as part of the called the Pyeongchang Peace Forum. And this was following up from the Olympic Peace Initiative from the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, which opened the door to an inter-Korean peace process. If you recall, they had a joint, the women's ice hockey team in 2018 was South Korean and North Korean ice hockey team playing together. That then provided sort of like a, a platform for a meeting at the Olympic Games in 2018 between an envoy of North Korea, actually the, Kim Jong-un's sister, and the Prime Minister of South Korea, and then that opened up the process for summits. So they use sports diplomacy. And there are a lot of good examples of sports diplomacy breaking down the barriers between countries. And this was one. The Pyeongchang Winter Olympics broke down the barriers and provided the start of the inter-Korean peace process. So we had a follow-up event to that hosted, by the Pyeongchang city and the Korean Olympic Committee. And in that, we were taking forward these ideas of diplomacy, not just in Northeast Asia and how that can be possible, but also globally in the world to end war. So here are like just a few examples of peace diplomacy working, of resolving quite entrenched conflicts or setting up processes to resolve quite entrenched conflicts in peaceful ways Often people don't know about them, so we're trying to publicize those a lot more.
0: You have served as Global Coordinator for Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament since it was founded in 2002. What is the group, and it's pretty clear what the focus is, but let's hear it from you.
1: Prior to engaging with parliamentarians, I was working more as like a lobbyist at the United Nations, trying to get the governments you know, to agree to UN resolutions and processes and treaty-based processes. And there's a key treaty called the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which most countries in the world are parties to, and the non-nuclear countries who are parties to it agree not to acquire nuclear weapons, and those with nuclear weapons agree to work for disarmament. In general, it's been quite successful on the first goal, stopping a lot more countries getting nuclear weapons, but it hasn't been very successful on the second goal, which is the disarmament goal, And what we came to realize after getting more agreements at the United Nations and at the treaty bodies is that we needed to have a bit more of a political push to implement the agreements that are made at the United Nations. Not enough people know about them and not enough people are actively implementing them. And what would be a good way of doing that was to get legislators, parliamentarians, to pay attention and to work together. So that's why we set up this international network of parliamentarians or legislators. It's cross party to enable there to be good conversation and communication with legislators. We have a council of about 50 um, high level parliamentarians. So in the United States, for example, Senator Ed Markey is our co-president. Other people on our council have been Federica Mogherini, who was the EU foreign minister. The current prime minister of South Korea is on our council, as is the former defence minister of Japan. So we have some high level parliamentarians on our council, but it's also open for any legislator to join. They don't have to be a high level person. And we provide a forum for also for experts at disarmament and civil society to engage with these parliamentarians so that we can focus on getting good policy adopted, whether that's trying to get legislation in the US Congress um, or in the French National Assembly or in the United Kingdom, you know, Westminster, the House of Commons, or in some of the non nuclear parliaments where they can also take initiatives. Like my own country, New Zealand, our parliamentarians have moved. Well, firstly, before our organisation was around legislation to ban nuclear weapons, but then we then said, well, we should do more than that. Why not stop investing public funds like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds in the nuclear weapons industry? So New Zealand now has done that with a push from our parliamentarians. Uh, Norway has done that. They have a big sovereign wealth fund, which has stopped now investing in the nuclear weapons industry. So to Our parliamentarians moved legislation in Switzerland that have done the same for the Swiss pension funds. And we're going to keep doing that. Because this is, as I mentioned before, you know, this is an important area, the nuclear weapons industry. So if we can start shifting public investments, you know, from nuclear weapons industry into better things, that will be a push. Our parliamentarians also working on nuclear risk reduction measures, like one of the key ones which we'll probably talk about a little bit more, which has a possibility of getting adopted with the Biden administration, is uh, de-alerting of the nuclear weapons so that they're not ready to be fired within minutes and a no-first-use policy. And these are a couple of initiatives which our parliamentarians are picking up to advance, particularly now with the Biden administration. But also our parliamentarians are working on regional issues because the nuclear weapons are around... It's not just US and Russia you know, that have them. I mean, there are nine countries with nuclear weapons and there's another 23 that rely on them. And so there is a number of security issues that our parliamentarians are addressing trying to lower the reliance on nuclear weapons. One way of doing that is to set up a nuclear weapon-free zone, like has happened in the South Pacific, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, in Central Asia. And there's a proposal for one in Northeast Asia. Other ways are to build communication between the parliaments. And so we're working with the interparliamentary union, which is like a network of 178 parliaments, and other ways of taking forward these policies of like DLRT, no first use, and pushing for cuts in numbers. So there's a range of ways that our members, parliamentarians, you know, are working for nuclear risk reduction and the elimination of nuclear weapons. One of the most recent calls that many of them are making is to say, okay, it's time for the nuclear-armed states to say, when are we going to get rid of these nuclear weapons? You might not be able to do it tomorrow, you might not be able to do it next year, but let's come and put a date, you know, why not, like, say, you'll be able to get rid of them all by 2045, which is the 100th anniversary of the United Nations, at least by then. You know, maybe you could do it by 2030, but let's say, you know, no more nuclear weapons. That would be a goal, you know, that could be feasible and something which could gain some traction.
0: By having the intention and by having the vision, which we haven't had. We haven't had a peace goal. And certainly speaking for here in the United States, people don't understand what peace is. There's no education. And we are totally tricked out for guns and violence and war. And we have this obscene budget in the Pentagon. Thinking what that money could do if it were applied to the needs of the country and the needs of the world, it would change things completely. We, however, are very stubborn and we're very uneducated in this. So, putting forth the ideas of peace and building it from the grassroots up, I think, is a necessary step for us to take, as well as having what you just mentioned. It's perfectly logical, but I've never heard it mentioned before to have the vision that, okay, by this day, We're going to be gone with nuclear weapons, and of course, then we have to deal with the waste, but that's another issue, and we're just going to have peace. Now, what attracted me to interviewing you was the fact that, according to Carl Grossman, who is Eminence, Gries, and one of my gurus, you would understand not only about the New START Treaty— which we can get into, but also other means that President Biden could take to dial back on the nuclear issue. So let's start with New START. What does it mean that it's been pulled back from the brink of being canceled and is now back for the next five years?
1: Yeah, so this is very important because the New START agreement was, I think, the only remaining (laughs) uh, nuclear arms control agreement between the United States and Russia, Uh, The INF, which is the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, had already been scuttled, which was the treaty to stop the development of middle range or the intermediate range nuclear forces. Also, the Ballistic Missile Defence Treaty had been scuttled, and the Open Skies Treaty. And these were all really important ones for putting controls on the nuclear arms race in order just to sort of keep a bit of a firebreak between the United States and Russia to ensure that if there is a, you know, a crisis or a conflict, that it doesn't erupt into a nuclear exchange, which would be horrific. The start is a start. It's not a plan for the elimination of nuclear weapons by any means, but it's a very important because it provides a process for Russia and the United States to agree to limitations um, on uh, nuclear weapons and delivery systems and to have some verification about that, to check that each other is keeping to that agreement. Both of those aspects are really important, you know, agreeing to limit and then reduce numbers and having some means to check that each other's doing it so you have confidence. If you have that, it can then help build confidence for another agreement, which will be important, to lower the numbers even further, or agreements to prevent the production of new dangerous types of weapon systems because both Russia and the United States have got like on the development books new destabilizing nuclear weapons ones that could be delivered by cruise missiles for example which can be very destabilizing because it can it's difficult to know whether such a missile would be carrying a regular warhead or a nuclear warhead so it's a start which is the name of it when new start was first, negotiated during the Obama administration. President Obama had hoped that it was just the first of a series of further agreements that would be taken between the US and Russia, that once the US and Russia got their numbers down low enough, it would then be possible to also bring in the UK, China and France and further nuclear disarmament measures. That never happened during the Obama administration. Things... Yes weren't taken further for a, a number of reasons and one was that President Obama didn't have a Congress behind him you know that the Congress when he took the new start agreement to the Congress to get ratified because international treaties have to be ratified by the Congress the entire Republican caucus said well we're not going to ratify the new start agreement unless you spend more money on nuclear weapons to modernize the weapons. So Obama basically had to give in to the demands of the Republicans in the Congress in order to get new start. But of course, that annoyed the Russians because the whole idea of new start was to stop the nuclear arms race, not to you know open the door to new types of weapons systems. What we have now with the Biden administration is we have a Congress that could support some of these initiatives. So there is a possibility to go further than what happened under the Obama administration to get the numbers with Russia down further, to put stops on modernization or new types of nuclear weapons, and also then to start building agreements with the other nuclear armed states. And this could include policy agreements or doctrine agreements like no first use and de-alerting lowering the readiness to use those weapons. This won't all happen all at once, but a combination of these could work well. And we see, for example, one of the things that could happen quite soon is an affirmation, not just by the US and Russia, but by all the nuclear armed states of the Reagan-Gorbachev dictum, which is really important. Reagan and Gorbachev, when they met in Reykjavik, they didn't end the nuclear arms race, but they they halted it. They said that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. This was really important because it shifted the planning of the countries and the nuclear weapons arsenals away from a war fighting objective and just to the idea of deterrence. This has been dropped basically since then by Russia and the United States, which had came back into thinking of nuclear weapon systems as part of war fighting. If you get the nuclear armed states to all agree to the Reagan-Gorbachev dictum, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. It helps set us then on the right path to working for the elimination of nuclear weapons in a phased process.
0: Is the key to this, the U.S. and Russia, or can the other nuclear states put that kind of pressure on those two states to come into alignment and everybody say, well, we need to back away from this?
1: I think it's a combination because the conflicts which give rise to reliance or potential reliance on nuclear weapons are not just U.S.-Russia. It's also in the Northeast Asia the North Korean context, it's also there's China and conflicts over the China Sea, there's the India-Pakistan conflict, there's the issue of Iran and the possibility of Iran pursuing nuclear weapons, and there's the situation of Israel, which neither confirms nor denies they have them, but we understand that they do. So there are a number of issues and areas, they need to be worked on simultaneously, And so it's not just about Russia, US, it's also ensuring that the JCPOA, that's the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, is reaffirmed and brought back into play, because that was one of the other agreements that the Trump administration walked away from. Uh, And that agreement with iran is the best possibility to ensure that iran cannot develop a nuclear weapon because it includes controls verified controls on their nuclear energy facilities to ensure they can't make a bomb there's also progress on a middle east zone free of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction and the un has started a series of conferences on that so that's really important also and there's the northeast asia area which is important and that's as I mentioned, the peace process got a kickstart with the Olympics in 2018. It had sort of hiccups, stop-start with the Trump administration. Basically, you know, President Trump would would say one day, you know, I've got a bigger button than Kim Jong Un, you know, and I can blow them out of the sky, and he's a rocket man. And then the next day, oh, he's my friend, and I can work with him. It was inconsistent. And so it didn't provide for a sustainable peace process. I think with the Biden administration, there's a possibility for a sustainable peace process with North Korea that could provide a formal end to the war, because the Korean War has never formally ended, denuclearization of North Korea, but that would also require security guarantees and lowering of the role of nuclear weapons in the region. All of these things, I think, go together. It's, I think, a package and different aspects need to be done. And with the Biden administration, I see it's a lot more possible because Biden was there under the Obama administration when some of these things were started. And he's got experience himself, and he's bringing experienced people in. And my understanding is that he does have an objective to work for lowering the threat of nuclear weapons and working for a process of nuclear disarmament.
0: One can only hope. One thing we haven't discussed yet is the fact that we now have the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That entered into force this past January and its international law. What impact has that treaty and its existence had so far in the world, and where do you think that might be going in terms of its influence?
1: So I think this has to be put into the broader context of the international law applicable to nuclear weapons because the treaty did not come out of a vacuum. There had already been a number of initiatives dealing with the legality of nuclear weapons, including the International Court of Justice advisory opinion of 1996, which affirmed that the threat or use of nuclear weapons is generally illegal and that there's an obligation to eliminate nuclear weapons. There's the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which... Non nuclear states are obliged not to acquire nuclear weapons, and the nuclear armed states are obliged to work for their elimination. There was the UN Human Rights Committee affirmation in 2018 that the threat or use of nuclear weapons is a violation of the right to life. So, this treaty now comes along as a way of implementing some of this already existing law and providing a more commitment by those who sign on to the treaty to take action for its implementation. If you don't put it in that context, then it it would look as though that treaty couldn't do very much because none of the nuclear armed states and none of the allied states have said that they will support it. And if they don't join a treaty, they're not bound by it. But they are bound by the existing customary international law and treaty law that was already existing prior to the treaty. So it's a really important reminder that there are these legal obligations that are already there and a commitment by states who are signing onto that treaty to take them forward.
0: What is the OSCE and how does that play into what we have been discussing?
1: The OSCE is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It was a very important initiative that was actually established during the Cold War, but as a really important mechanism for detente to ensure application of human rights and to build common security. And what I mean by common security is the addressing security through using legal mechanisms and international law, as opposed to the threat or use of force. So a common security approach is an inclusive approach. So for this, for the OSCE to be an inclusive approach, then it had to include all of the Soviet country, the Soviet Union and now all the former Soviet countries, as well as the US and Canada and all the European countries. So it's broader than NATO and it comes in a different framework. The idea of the OSCE is that you actually bring those countries together to discuss the problems and find solutions to the problems, as opposed to setting up a military block to counter the military actions of the other side, which is what the NATO security framework is. At the end of the Cold War, Mikhail Gorbachev put forward a vision that the military blocs should fade away, and that the OSCE would take over as the predominant security framework, uh, because it included Russia, it included the former Soviet countries, it included all of the Europeans, included America, included Canada, and it provided a conflict resolution approach. But unfortunately, the West didn't really see it that way, and instead sort of put more resources into NATO. And OSCE was sort of like the poor second cousin. It doesn't mean that it doesn't do good work. It actually does. If it wasn't for the OSCE, then the whole Ukraine conflict would have spiraled out of control and would have a full-scale war there because it was through the OSCE that the Minsk agreements were negotiated you know, between Russia, Ukraine, and NATO, and the United States to put an end to the high, high conflict and work for the management of that and the OSCE has done many other things, including verification of elections. And we've seen what happened with the election in the United States. When you don't have confidence you know, in elections, you have civil unrest, of course. So having an independent observer of elections in the former Soviet countries, as well as in some of the other European countries has been very, very helpful in having a a relatively smooth transition from the Cold War to a more democratic relationships between countries. It hasn't been perfect. It hasn't resolved everything, but it's provided some very important process. And if we put more emphasis on the OSCE, we have more of a solutions approach to these issues. I think we could then reduce the amount of funding that we're putting into the military because we could have confidence that we can resolve those conflicts and those issues in other ways.
0: There is also the UN Secretary General's disarmament agenda. What is that agenda and how is it
1: going? The United Nations was set up, you know, with the idea of ending war that has that in the charter, you know, that the threat or use of force is prohibited, but with an exception, self-defense of your country. It also has a disarmament agenda, and that's Article 26 as part of the Charter and the very first resolution of the United Nations put forward and it was adopted by consensus. The very first resolution called for the elimination of all weapons of mass destruction. And there have been many other United Nations initiatives. The problem has been implementation again. You know, there is a lot of nice resolutions adopted, but when it comes to actually implement it, it's difficult. And that's because there are security issues to deal with. There's also economic interests. What the Secretary General's Disarmament Agenda of 2018 did was to provide more of a rounded conceptual idea of how the disarmament fits in with security issues and how it fits in with sustainable development and human rights. And I think it gave people more of an idea of this is how we could move things forward. The difficulty with it is it's quite complicated. I mean, these are are complicated issues. And the report itself is, I think, 56 pages long and really difficult to, like, get the gist of you know, unless you're an academic or someone who's really in the field. So what we did to help parliamentarians get engaged with this is that we have produced a parliamentary handbook which picks up on the key issues that are in the UN Secretary General's Sassama agenda, simplified them down so they're understandable to your average legislator or your city councillor or even you know, your average citizen, and then highlighted some examples of effective policies whether it's legislative action or parliamentary initiatives or government policies to take forward those different aspects in the disarmament agenda. And that includes all sorts of disarmament, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, space warfare, cyber warfare, small arms and light weapons, arms trade. It's these different issues like cluster munitions, landmines. They're all in there. And what we highlight is here are policies that have worked in various countries or in various regions, so you can learn from those policies that have been working to then take them forward in your community or in your country or in your region. So that's the Parliamentary Handbook, which we just released last year, and we're doing a lot of now follow-up workshops with parliamentarians in different countries and on different issues to take forward some of those policies.
0: Is that parliamentary handbook generally available, and Mm -hmm. if so, could we link to a way that people might be able to get it for themselves?
1: Yes, it's online. So we have it online in both, you know, web version and PDF version. It's divided into the different chapters, so it's very easy. You know, if you're more interested in, say, cyber warfare, then you just click on that chapter and it's got, you know, the UN resolutions, it's got parliamentary examples and action. Or if you're more interested in cluster munitions, you can click on that part. Or on small arms and light weapons, you can click on that part. So, yeah, so we can provide the URL. The website for that is basically just disarmamenthandbook.org disarmamenthandbook.org
0: We will get that out and that leads me to my final big question which is if we could get this parliamentary handbook into the hands of Joe Biden to help guide his next steps towards dialing back and getting rid of nuclear weapons as best he can during his administration what would you suggest that his next steps be?
1: So, as I mentioned before, we have a number of U.S. legislators who are members of our network, and the lead one would be Senator Markey. He's wonderful. Uh, He's co-president of uh, our network, Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non-Proliferation and Disarmament. And he's initiated quite a number of initiatives in the Senate and is also companions in the House. One of these is very broad. It's called the SANE Act, Smarter Approach to Nuclear Expenditure. And it's looking at the nuclear budget as a whole, looking at weapon systems which the United States doesn't need, even while they maintain a nuclear deterrence posture. They could eliminate certain numbers of nuclear weapons and save a lot of money in the budget. And that money then could be used to help with you know the economic recovery from COVID nineteen, you know, for example, public health measures or support renewable energy or the Green Deal, which Senator Markey is also one of the leaders of. So that's one aspect. Another one I mentioned before is no first use. And uh, it's actually Senator Warren in the Senate who's advancing that one. And Adam Smith in the House is advancing no first use. Um, But that's one that Senator Markey supports. And That's one that I think, you know, Biden wants to work on. But in order, I think, for Biden to be able to adopt no first use as a US policy, we also need to convince the NATO countries, South Korea and Japan, to agree to no first use because the US is providing nuclear deterrence protection for those countries. And if they say, Oh look, we need the option of first use of nuclear weapons to counter North Korea or we need the option of first use of nuclear weapons to counter Russia, it's going to be difficult for President Biden to move. So that's why it's important, not just for our legislators and for the civil society to work in the United States, we also have to work in the allied countries. And we're doing that, and we're getting you know, quite a lot of support. We already have the parliamentary assembly of the OSCE, which we mentioned before, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which supports the idea of no first use, and that includes parliamentary representatives from France, UK, Russia, and the United States, as well as the NATO countries. So I think no first use is something which really has a possibility of moving ahead.
0: This has been such a hopeful interview. I'm wondering if there's anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to mention at this time.
1: I would just reaffirm again the connection between nuclear disarmament and other key issues like the Green Deal, public health, economic recovery from COVID-19 and the whole dealing with these issues which are so important for our security. The nuclear weapons were powerless to stop the spread of this COVID virus and investing in nuclear weapons can't contribute anything to dealing with the impact of this virus. Nuclear weapons can't protect us from the climate change, and investing in them does nothing to help us lower carbon emissions and move from a fossil fuel-based economy to one that's a renewable economy. Nuclear weapons do nothing to deal with the threats to biodiversity that we've got. So the connection of the issues, I think, is very important. Nuclear weapons can't resolve the civil conflicts that are happening, or the misinformation that's been spread, or the issues of racism and structural violence. Relevant to like some of the real security issues. So we need to emphasize addressing the real security issues and focusing our collective attention, our resources, taking the funding away from the nuclear weapons, taking the investments away from the corporations. The corporations are going to fight back. I mean, they're powerful. You know, the corporations may, building these nuclear weapons are lobbying Congress to say, oh, no, no, we still have to hold on to them. You know, we, we, we can't be certain, you can't have confidence. You know, there will be, be many reasons why we can't move forward, which will be promoted by those who have vested financial interests. So we have to try and shift that financial playing field as well. So I think making the connections, and we're building cooperation with the climate change movement all the time. Our divestment campaign, we're calling on banks and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and city funds uh, to stop investing not just in nuclear weapons, but stop investing in fossil fuels. We need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. Those investments that are going into fossil fuels should be going into renewable energy. So it's actually quite good that we're working together um, now, you know, these, these campaigns. And I would encourage that, whether it's in the United States or anywhere else in the world, work with those who are on other issues. These issues are important to us. Don't just focus solely on nuclear disarmament or just solely on climate. See the connections and work together.
0: If people wish to find out more about your work and the work of parliamentarians for nuclear non-proliferation and disarmament, where can they go and how can they get in touch with you?
1: So the website is www.pnnd.org. So that's the parliamentary initiative. And then I mentioned Unfold Zero about the United Nations which is really important because people don't know enough about the United Nations, and the fact that the core budget of the United Nations is $6 billion per year. That's for everything the United Nations does around the world. That's about the same as the budget for the New York Police Force it's a small amount. It's a minuscule part of like the military budget, which in the United States is over 600 billion a year. We need to invest more in the UN, but we need to know more about it. Not enough people know the good things the UN is doing. So that's unfoldzero.org, U-N-F-O-L-D-zero.org.
0: Alan Ware, I have to say this is one of the most hopeful Interviews I have conducted in nine and a half years, over 500 episodes of Nuclear Hot Seat. And I'm very excited to be sharing this with my listeners. All best to mm-hmm. you on your thank continued you. work on behalf of people and the planet and the environment. Mm-hmm. And especially, thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure.
0: That was Alan Ware, Global Coordinator for Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament. We have a whole list of links for Alan and his work, the first one being for Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament, or pnnd.org, as well as the Parliamentary Handbook, Information on Unfold Zero, Move the Nuclear Weapons Money, that's related to Don't Bank on the Bomb, and much more. That will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 504.
1: Activist, activist, shout out, shout out,
0: shout out. The Youth Fusion Elders Initiative, mentioned by Alan Ware in our interview, will launch with a World Future Day Nuclear Remembrance Day on Monday, March first, from 12 noon to 1:30 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be an intergenerational dialogue with nuclear activist elders from Germany, the UK, Denmark, and Mexico. We'll have a link up to that so that you can sign up for it. San Luis Obispo Mothers for Peace, in honor of the Fukushima anniversary, has put together a webinar featuring biologist Mary Olson talking about her work on the Gender and Radiation Project and why radiation is so much more dangerous for women and children and especially little girls. There will also be a presentation by Yuji and Beverly finlay Kaneko, My Voices from Japan producers, on the current situation in Fukushima. This will be Thursday, March 11, from 6 to 7:30 p.m. Pacific time. Link to sign up will be on the website. And if you're looking for a job, WPSR is hiring. That's Washington State Physicians for Social Responsibility. They're looking for a nuclear weapons abolition organizer, someone who is a storyteller, community builder, activist, event planner, communicator, and leader who can help chart a course through the new administration and beyond as we imagine and build a world free from the threat of nuclear warfare and weapons development and testing. Of course, link will be on the website. And I got to tell you, if I were 30 years younger, I would be running flat out after this one. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 16, 2021. Material for this show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deundrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Bloomberg.com, nhk.or.jp, simplyinfo.org, dailystar.co.uk, japantimes.co.jp, the assistance of Erica Gray, Charles Langley and Public Watchdogs, CNN.com, MiamiNewTimes.com, MintPressNews.com, SpaceNews.com, Carl Grossman on Counterpunch.org, HelenAir.com, TexasTribune.com, PowerMag.com, TheStar.com, CBC.ca, Eminetra.co.za, TribuneIndia.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating – Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, want to help out our numbers and our algorithm? Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and sign up for our email. That's one a week where you get the link to each week's show and a brief prece on exactly what is inside it. It's an easy way to make certain that you don't miss a single episode. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you can do to help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heart History Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that as President Ronald Reagan and Premier Mikhail Gorbachev of Russia both said, a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. There you go. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we're all in the nuclear hot seat